This is the Miller Report with Suzanne Miller on the Red Apple Podcast Network. And now, here's Suzanne Miller. Welcome to the Miller Report. I'm Suzanne Miller, CEO of Empire State Properties and host of the Miller Report. Last week, we had Eric Adams on the Miller Report, and the week before, we had Governor Cuomo. Today's guest grew up in Peekskill, New York. His family's from Hungary. In 1963, he graduated Yale University. In 1970, he graduated Columbia Law School. And in 1994, he became governor of New York, where he defeated Mario Cuomo, and he became a three-term governor. Welcome, George Pataki to the Miller Report. Thank you so much for coming here. Uh, thank you, Suzanne. I, I've been looking forward to this for a long time and happy to be on. Thank you so much. First of all, Governor, thank you for what you did. And we're going to get into a lot. But now that you're not in politics, how do you spend your time? I'm still in politics, you know, uh, uh, not an active, not holding elected office, but I still care a lot. And candidates who I like, I will do my best to try to help. And I think we all have that obligation, and certainly I do. So many people help me that I have an obligation now to help those I think would be good for the city, the state, or the country. So I'm still doing that. But then I'm still uh, counsel with a great global law firm. I'm headed off to Australia with them in a couple of days right after Thanksgiving uh, to do some business development. And uh, I have my Pataki Center where we've been trying to do our best to help First, the people in Ukraine when that horrible war occurred, and now we're trying to help uh, with the Israelis as well, given the, the Gaza war that's ongoing. So we're just trying to continue to do uh, what I can do to try to help make things a little better. Well, we're going to get into all of those subjects, which is fantastic. But when you were the governor, you've accomplished so many great things, and I really mean this from my heart. You cut taxes for 12 years in a row. You made New York City really feel safe. You created charter schools. And most importantly, you were successful in fighting terrorism. So what do you think your biggest accomplishment was after all those things I said? Crime. No question. Uh, I thought that before I got elected governor, while I was governor, and I think it today, the most important thing by far government does is provide for the safety of its people. And New York was failing, failing miserably when I ran for office. You remember 2,200 murders in New York City. Uh, and uh, when people look at the, the dramatic change, they look at New York City, Bloomberg and, and Giuliani and, and Bratton, and they all deserve credit. But I can tell you, we changed over 100 criminal justice laws in Albany. We completely changed the criminal justice system. We changed the judges. We changed parole. We changed sentencing. Uh, and we went from being the most dangerous state in America to, I think it was the third safest. Utah and Iowa were safer than New York. And uh, that's the most important thing government does. And right now, sadly, they've undone most of these reforms. And we've gone from being a place where you could walk in Harlem in the middle of the night and feel safe to where you're not safe in midday in Midtown. And it's just tragic to see this happening. I agree. We've come so far, but let's just go back to September 11th, which for me personally was such a tough day. I mean, my, my late husband passed away a few months later. So this really, and I lived in Battery Park City and Empire State Properties rebuilt the area, but you united us. You were the person we would watch and you literally, you made us feel safe. The market, the real estate market went down, but just for a nanosecond, within six months, it went back up 20%. So if you were the governor again right now, 
How would you unite us again? And that's really a big question because that is what we need. You know, uniting people isn't that hard when you lay out exactly where you want to go. It's not a question of having a budget and, oh, I dislike this or I like that. It's a question of having a vision as to where you want to be. And my vision was very simple. I wanted to make New York State the safest state. I wanted to make New York City, again, a place where young people from around the country wanted to be. I wanted to make sure our schools worked and our health system worked. And I just laid out that vision. And when you do that, almost everybody's in agreement with those ideals. And right now, where's the vision? What's the, what's the, the sense of where we as a city or as a state are headed? Where are, are we as a, hunt, a country headed? There isn't that view over the horizon of what we can accomplish when we work together. And, of course, September 11th, one of the only positives that came out of that was that sense of unity. We didn't have the sense that we were Republicans, Democrats, black, white, north, south, young, old. We were New Yorkers. We were Americans. We had been attacked and we were going to stand together. And if there's one thing that is most disappointing to me about our city and country today, it's how divided we are. We lost that sense that we're all in this together. We're still all in it together. We just don't understand that. So, Governor Pataki, I'm going to ask you again, let's roll back. Let's say you are the governor today because you, we all agree you did a fantastic job. We're giving you the keys. How are you going to unite us? I'd lay out exactly what I want to do in criminal justice to make the streets safer. And by the way, not just the streets safer so that you can go into a drugstore and don't have to get them to unlock the toothpaste. I mean, these quality of life issues matter and the violent crime issues, of course, uh, matter uh, as a matter of life and death. So I lay out a vision of how we can be the safest city and state in the country again. We did it before and we'll do it again. The second is people have to have confidence in our future. We tax too much. We regulate too much. We don't do enough enough to improve the quality of life. And uh, you know as well, probably better than I do, in the last few years, a trillion dollars in managed capital has moved from New York to Florida. Uh, And that's going to continue unless we lay out that future that people can say, yes, I want to get there. We have to cut taxes. They're too high. It's that simple. And I know that the city and the state face a budget deficit. But Suzanne, when I got elected, one of the I knew state government well, but one of the few surprises was I was left with a $5 billion deficit that nobody knew about back when $5 million was a lot of money. It doesn't, now we've seen so much inflation, it doesn't seem that much, but it was a huge amount of money. And everybody said, well, you're going to have to raise taxes. And I said, no, we're going to have to cut taxes. And they thought I was out of my mind. But when you create a better business climate, when you have more taxpayers, when you have more jobs, when you have more companies, even at a lower tax rate, you get higher tax revenue. And it worked. And we, as you said, we cut taxes all 12 years, $147 billion more than the other 49 states combined. And at the end, we had surpluses. We had increased funding for schools and education and health care. And, uh, and we had surpluses while cutting taxes. And it would work again. You know, you know what's so frustrating to me, Suzanne, is it's not like this is some brand new magic formula that people will say, well, maybe it worked, maybe, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. We did it. It worked. It would work again today. You tell a, a business that's on the ropes, are they going to expand in New York, are going to then move out of the state, that this is what the future is going to like. We're going to cut taxes the next five years. We're going to have safer streets. We're going to have a cleaner environment. And they're going to say, Okay, I'll give you a chance. 
I'm really laughing, Governor, because I, I promised everybody, nobody, I, he did not see these questions beforehand, but my next question was going to be, how do we keep businesses here? And you actually answered that because New York is based on tourism and corporations. And if we can't get those people here to help us, then this is really an issue. So to address the businesses, so what is it, a half a million people left in the last two years? I think it's a half probably, a million people. Probably. So you think that if we cut the taxes and we make the, the streets safer, then we're going to get the companies to stay because we do need the companies. New York, I think, is still the best place in the world. But you, it has to be competitive. And people have to have a sense that the future is going to be better than, the, than it is today. And they don't have that sense. And when I got elected, you know, I knew we couldn't cut all the taxes at once. We passed a bill cutting taxes over the next three years. And I went around before I took office, meet with the, met with the CEOs of all these big companies saying, look, this is what I'm going to do. Give me a chance. And, and I'll never forget I got elected. This is ancient history. Before I take office, I get elected, and I'm going around the, the state meeting with the CEO saying, this is my vision for New York. Give me a chance. Don't leave. Uh, and I met with the head of IBM. And they sat down and showed me a map and had their world headquarters, and it had a line, and then it had some vacant land. And they go to me, do you know what that line is? And I go, I don't know. It's on a survey. It's probably a stone wall. And they go, it's the state line between New York and Connecticut. We haven't told anybody, but we're looking to build our world headquarters on the other side of that line. Uh, wh why shouldn't we do it? And by the way, they also said they had whenever they had a chance, they moved every single job out of New York State without ever announcing it. So, so I just laid out the vision, and today they have their new world headquarters. They've invested billions of dollars in chip manufacturing plants. So it works. And, you know, how is it that people who have seen two models, one works, one doesn't work, and they go for the one that doesn't work? You know, I get passionate about this because I spent my whole life trying to make this a better city and state and to see so much of it unraveling for no good reason is I really could, frustrating. I couldn't agree, but maybe we'll be able to fix it together. And you that's one of the it. things we do day to day by the Miller Report and people like you speaking out. I want to talk to you about real estate. Because real estate does, is really the fundamental thing that keeps most cities, particularly, and I keep saying this, New York vibrant. And we need this, we need developers to build, we need affordable housing. Let's tackle 421A for a minute, which is, I ask everybody on the Miller Report about 421A. Are you a proponent and what do you think about that it's not been renewed? Yeah, I think it's just disappointing that, uh, uh, you know, you need tax incentives, particularly when you, everything else is so difficult. It's not just 421A. It's what they did on rent control. You know, the idea that we're not only are we not going to see buildings going up the way we should in New York, because this is New York, we're going to see older buildings that are rent controlled being abandoned because you can't get a return on fixing up uh, a, a, a lobby, a building, a, a, a plumbing system uh, when the rent control doesn't allow you to recoup those funds. And we both have friends who are developers who are lifelong New Yorkers, born here, raised here, developed here, who are now in Florida. Uh, and it's not because they want to be in Florida. It's because they just are too frustrated with the climate in New York. So, yes, it's... Uh, creating incentives, but it's also taking away the disincentives that discourage people that even if they make the investment, it's liable to be taken from them through government action. 
What about the office vacancy crisis? I mean, the A buildings are doing very well. What do we do about the B buildings? I worry about that all the time because I work in a big high rise in Midtown. And uh, I'm still one of the crazy people who actually goes to work and goes in the office. And oftentimes I don't see anybody else in the office. And there are 400 lawyers and maybe on a given day. 40 of them will be in the office. And, you know, what's going to happen to all that space when the leases are up? So I, I very much worry about that. Yes, there's going to be conversion to uh, from office to residential, but that's not ultimate. You don't want the offices all to be converted because there's no businesses here to support the residents. And um, you just have to create incentives for people to come back. And part of that is quality of life. You know, you walk down 6th Avenue and you get harassed by some mentally ill person or some homeless person begging, and you just say, I'm not going to go through this. You know, I'll keep working from home, and if they won't let me, I'll go someplace else. So quality of life is absolutely essential to bringing people back. And uh, uh, that's another thing with uh, the, the mentally ill who are uh, just out on the streets. We have to do far more to provide them the help they need in secure institutions. It's good for them. And, of course, it's great for the city and the people who otherwise could be victimized from them. So there are solutions. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. So it's interesting because the current administration, it's not their fault that COVID happened and it is really just an issue where people don't need to be in New York. They don't need to go to the office because there is remote now. Right. So if you were the governor, what incentives would you give people to come back to work? Because it sounds like that would be a very good answer. You know, I don't know that there's a specific incentive where you, you, we could say we're going to give you X if you go to work in the office. It's more like the employers who have to do that, who have to say, we need you here. Uh, and, you know, I know some have tried to say you have to be here right. five days a week. In some cases, it's worked. A lot of cases, it has worked. In other cases, it hasn't. But what is troubling to me is short term, we have this office space issue that is a mm -hmm. real problem. Longer term, the young people aren't getting the mentorship. They're not developing the relationships. They're not seeing how uh, as they want to grow their careers, the importance of face-to-face -face contact. You know, uh, I do Zooms all the time, and it's a great technique, a great invention, but it's not the same. It's not, it's not the same, and that's one of the things that companies – employers have to tell their employees, you know, we know you don't want to come to work, but this is in your best interest and you need to. So I don't think it's a specific incentive the state should give to get people to come back to work. I think it's quality of life. 
when people make it easier to get there, make sure the subways and the trains work, make sure that the streets work, make sure that you're not going to be accosted by the homeless or a mentally ill or a criminal on the streets. Uh, and then beyond that, it's the employer to make the case as to why, from the employee standpoint, it's so essential that they come to work. A lot of people don't have to. And, you know, like, I go to work, but I don't have to. I mean, I don't need to start developing relationships with people. But I just think that social interaction makes so much difference uh, that it's why I still I still actually come in. Makes us human. Yeah, I know when you when you were the governor, you were an advocate for the casinos upstate. It was the Indian River Casino, I think it was called. So, do you think that'll be good for New York City? I know they're going to bring casinos here. What's your thoughts? I I it can be. You know, I have mixed feelings. It has to be done right. Uh, you have to have very tight regulation. You have to have very close controls. And uh, I was four in the Catskills and traditional tourism reasons that were dying because the Catskills was getting killed by Atlantic City and Foxwoods in Connecticut. So I supported in the Catskills, Niagara Falls, other historic resort areas doing it. New York City you know, it's going to happen, uh, and I just hope that they do it right, that they protect, uh, that they require significant ancillary development. You don't want to just have a casino. You want to have hotels. You want to have restaurants. You want to have shops. You want to have uh, other tourism things that make New York uh, uh, more attractive for people to come from everywhere because you want it to be not the local person going in and losing their paycheck. You want it to be someone coming from Europe or South America or Asia uh, and experiencing New York and having a different experience. It can be helpful. It can be beneficial. I just hope they do it in a way that makes it targeted towards those tourists coming here as opposed to relying on locals locals who should not be visiting the the neighborhood casino. Like we said, tourists and businesses. Tourists and business. So let's talk a little bit about Israel which is a fiery topic right now. I know you're a proponent. I know you've been a very big advocate for Israel. Do you think that we're doing enough? You know, I I don't, I I think, I wish there were more that we could do. I think we are doing as much militarily. If Israel needs military help, we're going to provide it. But I don't think the president, the administration, or the country is making it plain that there is good and bad here. What Hamas did is one of the worst atrocities and worst evils since World War II, since the Holocaust. And the idea that there is some even remote justification for what they did is, to me, inexcusable. There's no justification. This is barbaric. This killing little children and old people, and not just uh, because you're in a war, but consciously doing that and gloating about it is barbaric in a way we haven't seen since World War II. So I, so I think the administration, all political leaders, the American people need to stand up and say there's no equivalency here. Israel has to do what needs to be done to defeat Hamas and make sure an atrocity like this does not happen again. As they have said, uh, never again means right now because it happened again and it cannot happen one more time. And one of the horrors of this is the seeing the American universities and just the, the so-called educated people who are clueless, chanting horrible anti-Semitic slogans. And I happen to be with a Jewish family in Central America, uh, and they showed me a video of their daughter going to college in Massachusetts who had 
emailed her father, I'm terrified. Look what's going on in the streets. And there was this pro-Palestinian rally. And he said, how can this be in America? And that was exactly my reaction. How can this be in America? It is inexcusable. And I think our higher education institutions need to be held accountable for their failure to teach right and wrong, uh, as opposed to teaching leftist ideology that, that, that has resulted in so many people just being against anything that's Western, whether it's Western Europe, Israeli values, American values. Uh, we have to learn that we're losing that battle for civilization versus barbarism, uh, not just among Hamas, but among so-called educated people in America. You know, you were the person that led us through the most tragic days and the Osama bin Laden letter came out. So my parents were Holocaust survivors and they were in Poland during when this started and they would tell me stories about the pogroms on the streets. And it's chilling similarities to what's happening today. So if you were the governor today and you saw these protests that said, death to Israel, death to America, how would you handle it? That's hate, hate speech. First of all, I would kick out any organization that sent any sort of a letter or communication supporting Hamas from any single state university, that you're gone uh, and you're not coming back, throw them all out. I would enforce the law. You know, too often uh, we have allowed illegal demonstrations to simply because either the, the politicians agree with the tone of the demonstration or because they're too weak to stand up to the demonstrators to, to carry on. These are not demonstrations with permits. They don't go apply for a, uh, an organization's ability to hold a rally. You hold an illegal demonstration uh, spewing hate and anti-Semitism, uh, you should be arrested. You know, you're breaking the law. We will enforce the law. It's not freedom of speech. It's not freedom of speech. It's perfectly freedom of speech for you to sit in your house or in your car or in a small group of people and say anything you want. But to publicly call for hate crimes, for uh, anti-Semitic genocide, that's intolerable and it's not protected by the, the First Amendment. Thank you. Let's move on to Ukraine. You've done so much for Ukraine, Governor Pataki. I know you have a foundation called the George Pataki Leadership Center. Tell us about it. Well, we created it after September 11th, actually. And the idea, and we still do this every year, is we bring together all the people who worked with me, our, my whole team, uh, who worked on September 11th, and we honor just to get together and, and thank each other for that, what we did to get through those horrible days and weeks afterwards. And we honor a, a group of people, one or two or three people or organizations who are unsung heroes on that day and in the days thereafter. So that's how it started. And then when the Ukraine war broke out, we said, wow, this is horrible. You know, I, I, just a, a state invading another free state, you know, something that was the beginning of World War II and what's happening now. And the Ukrainians which have just been so courageous in standing up to Putin uh, and the Russian attacks. And we just said, what can we do to help? And, you know, you think, well, we could send a check, but where does it go? And then we said, well, let's go. Uh, so literally within three or four days of the start of the war, myself and some other 
volunteers from the Pataki Center, we went into Ukraine and we took in some medicine and food and supplies. And we went in and met with some of the Ukrainian officials. The U.S. government said, you can't go, don't go and everything. So we went anyway. <laughs> uh, and we saw just an enormous humanitarian need, enormous. So since that time, people from the center have been back 11 times. I've been there, I think, five times. We've taken in everything from medicine and food to pop-up housing, temporary housing buildings that are really very good and the government loves them. Last winter, we took in hundreds, maybe even five or 600 heaters uh, to help them get through the, the the, the winter, we took in generators, major generators, because the Russians are targeting their infrastructure, their power infrastructure, their heating infrastructure, to try to freeze them out. So we brought in these, it may have been close to a thousand generators, uh, uh, heaters, to help them get through the winter. And the, the, I haven't been there since June, and I feel bad about that. But in June, we were there, it was still kind of cold, and we were in Kiev. And President Zelensky has set up these heating centers. Um, and, and there was one in a park in Kiev where we were. And I just happened to go in and look in the heating center. And our generator was in the heating center in Kiev, you know, that people would come to. to uh, they could recharge their iPhones or, or if it's cold and they don't have heat in their building, get warm. So it, it made me feel good that we're positively impacting people's lives. I want to ask you about how many people you think you've you've helped in Ukraine. With the the heaters and the generators, 100,000. Wow. Oh my god, you know, thank you. That's I mean, amazing. Cuz we did take in close to 1,000 heaters and some were massive industrial uh, size heaters that could heat an entire block and uh, it, it, it and you know, we don't have any paid employee, not one. Everybody who's gone, and we, as I said, 11 trips, uh, have all just been volunteers, and we've had people donate that have allowed us to, to purchase all this stuff. And uh, uh, now with the winter coming on, we'll do more. So what supplies are needed? It's the, it's the same thing, heating, uh, generators, um, and also housing. You know, okay. we went to some of the battle areas and and you just see people uh great spirit tremendous spirit they're gonna they're never gonna surrender i mean if uh they would fight to the last ditch and it would be whether they were a 90 year old or a nine year old they would fight to the end so it makes you th makes you want to do more called uniting yeah exactly right so let's move on to a very unpleasant subject, which seems to be the biggest there issue in New York. There seem to be a bunch of A lot of those. Let's talk about the days. migrants, Governor Pataki. It's let's talk about the migrants. It's let's talk about if you were the governor, how would you handle this? Well, first of all, uh, I would be every day calling the president saying, you got to shut the border. This is absolute nonsense. There, there Millions have crossed. Uh, millions of more will if he doesn't do anything at all. And it's just an absolute failure to uphold your oath of office, to allow us to have this completely open border. And to me, it's just inexcusable. And what is also troubling me is so long as they were in Texas and New Mexico, nobody in New York cared. But all of a sudden, 100,000, 110,000, 120, and all of a sudden, this is a catastrophe. Well, it was, think about Texas that has had millions 
of illegals crossing this area, and nobody cared when it was Texas. We need to close the border. And I would every day call the president, send a letter to the president, send people down to knock on his door, quite literally we're from my administration. We're told that Mayor Adams is doing this. Every and day. it's not working. That's yeah. what we're told. He sat on this report and last I week. And I would make it very public. You know, we're going back to see the president. We're going to sit outside the White House until he lets us in. And if he doesn't let us in, we're coming back the next day because this is a catastrophe. The second thing I'd do is I'd end any sort of pretense that we're a sanctuary city. You know, that is just nonsensical. We're not going to uphold the law. Oh, it's a federal law. We don't like it. We're not going to uphold it. The Civil War was about that. The law has to apply everywhere in the country. You can't pick and choose which laws you want to uphold. So I would say this is not a sanctuary city. This is not a sanctuary state. Uh, we don't want you here unless you have come here legally. The third thing I would do is I'd send them to Washington. If you, uh, if their people are coming in at the Port Authority, I'd hire buses and send them right to Washington. And, you know, it, it's tragic because these are people, and you want to treat them with dignity and respect. Yes, they may have crossed the border illegally, but they're still human beings that you want to show compassion for. But there comes a point where compassion becomes a catastrophe when you have hundreds of thousands of people and demands that you can't meet. Uh, our first obligation is to the school kids of New York who were failing and should be doing better as opposed to these illegals, to the poor, to the veterans. Uh, and so as tragic as it would be, I would take buses, send them to Washington saying, we love you, but we cannot afford, we're not in a position to provide help for hundreds of thousands of people who have come here illegally. When did it become a state thing? A state thing? It's so that, not a state thing. Well, that, when did it become oh, the state? Obligation? Yes, when did it become a state I obligation? Think a lot of that is self-inflicted. Self you know, back in the late 80s, there was a court decision saying that New York has a right to provide housing to the homeless. That was when there were a few thousand homeless. That, that court case in no way applies to hundreds of thousands of illegals that New York has to provide uh, shelter and housing and food and everything else. And I would just treat that case as null and void. And so we have no obligation at all. Uh, so when it became a state thing, I think we have voluntarily assumed the obligation that it's a state thing. There's no law. Uh, requiring us to do this. And uh, uh, I mean, it's the same as there's no law requiring us if a veteran uh, is living in upstate and doesn't have a house, we don't have to provide them with everything. As a matter of policy, I would, you know, someone who served our country like that, but there's no legal obligation. But, and I certainly don't think, uh, I, th I think we've just been way too passive in just accepting and not, like you said, Adam says, gone after Biden. Yeah, he has, but not as consistently and aggressively as I would. Uh, and the governor hasn't gone after him at all. You know, oh, Washington should help us. That's not good enough. You know, make demands, uh, take action, require them to do things. Do you think the current investigation on Mayor Adams is because he is complaining about Washington and the border? It's certainly possible. You know, I mean... I, I don't know, but I have sufficient suspicions of how our Justice Department has treated Joe Biden and Hunter Biden uh, and the obvious corruption that the media has ignored and the Justice Department has ignored uh, to tragically be able to say it's, a poss it's not impossible that that is, that that is the case. Let's go on to uh, public schools. You, you are an advocate for charter schools. We are the most expensive city for schools probably in the nation with the worst test scores. 
and no graduation rates. Like, how do we fix this? Uh, you got to have competition within the school system. You have to be able to get rid of incompetent teachers. Uh, and, and this is something, you know, I fought hard to do. We passed a charter school law when I was governor, and that's a great story as to how we passed that. No one wanted it, but we got it done. And uh, actually, this year is the 25th anniversary of having charter schools in New York State, and they're working great. <laughs> um, uh, other states had tried it, and it was working. Our public system was inadequate. Parts were working, parts weren't working. So I've always believed in competition, whether it's in business or politics or, or in education. And so uh, I just said, we're going to have a charter school law in New York, and it's not just going to be law, it's going to be a great law. And teachers' union hated it. The school board's association hated it. The Democrats hated it. The Republicans hated it because they were afraid for their suburban schools. And I just said, we're going to do it or you're not getting a pay raise. And so long story short, the night of the last day when I told them I was vetoing their pay raise if they didn't pass the public <laughs> school bill, uh, and they said, oh, you'll never do that. Both You'll be bipartisan hated if you veto the pay raise. And I said, that's all right, I'll veto it. The last night, around 11 o'clock at night, I got a call, and they said, okay, we'll pass your Follow the money. school bill. Follow the money. So it worked. But uh, that uh, competition is a great thing. Holding the teachers accountable, making sure that they uh, um, actually can teach the course. And another thing thing that we've reversed on that I did is, and the teachers actually agree with me on this, if you have one kid is disruptive in a classroom, that one kid is preventing 15 kids from learning who want to learn, you have to be able to remove that kid from the classroom. And we took steps to do that, and they've reversed that because, oh, it's racist to remove a disruptive kid from the classroom. No, it's racist to prevent the other 14 kids from getting the education they deserve because you're tolerating one disruptive student. So that's another thing that can be done and that should be done. There are so many solutions, and, and that's the sad part is we just don't have the leadership, period. It's that simple. You know, um, I hear everything that you're saying. Last week, as I said, Mayor Adams came on the Miller Report and we talked about real estate because the Miller Report is a real estate podcast mostly. Mm -hmm. And personally, I'm very concerned because we are a company that sells investment properties. In the last week, people are calling, they want to sell their properties in New York because who's going to want to buy in New York City when our mayor says that everything's being cut, taxes are going up, prices are going to go completely down. They've already gone down by 20% as I see it in the last two weeks. If you were the governor today right now, how would you bring that morale back and what would you tell an investor that's sitting in India or South America or Israel, wherever they are, what would you tell an investor that would feel confident that they should invest in this country, uh, in this city? Mayor Adams' budget sends exactly the wrong message. Instead of things are going to get better, he's sending the message things are going to get worse. Uh, and how is that going to help people to say, I'm willing to invest in New York? You have to lay out a path to a better future. You have to have the vision of a better future. And like when it comes to taxes, uh, I know he's got a budget deficit. I would defund all the programs for the illegals. Uh, and or I would do some, something dramatic, like I'd take the state's payments that they're supposed to make to the federal government for Medicaid, and I'd use them to pay for the homeless and say, sue me. You know, something like that. Dramatic. You, yeah, you have to do something dramatic. Uh, I mean, when the ship is sinking, you don't sit there with a cup bailing it out. you got to figure out something major to prevent it from sinking. So 
I mean, that's just another crazy idea. My lawyers, if I were governor, would probably say he can't do it. We might do it anyway. But, uh, but you, have to, you have to show that you're serious about changing things for the better. And when you just have a budget, oh, everything's awful. Here's the budget. It's going to get worse. How are people going to react? They're going to say there's no confidence. Paint, show a vision of what that better future can look like and how you're going to get there. And, and you could do it. You could do it today. When you were the governor, you governed in a blue state, and you won. And you were one of the most loved governors, one of the most loved. Do you think this city is ready for a Republican governor? I think the people are ready for an effective leader. It's that simple. And the idea that a Republican is going to beat a Democrat in this state, no. But a, a Republican candidate who can lay out that vision as to how we can be the safest state again, how we can be a state where people are coming, young people are coming to New York because it's the place of excitement, where businesses are saying, I have to be in New York. This is the financial and competitive capital of the world. Uh, then, yeah, uh, a Republican can win. It's not, not because of the party, because of the vision. So would that Republican maybe be you? <laughs> Biden's too old to be president. I mean, I, I have no desire to be president. But uh, what about governor? I, I, Can we endorse you right now? I Can we endorse you right now? <laughs> I love my life. I'm very happy with what Can I'm. Can we doing. recruit you? I'm just so discouraged. I, you know, there are plenty of younger people ready to take on the challenge. I'm sure who could lay out that uh, path to a, a brilliant future for New York. Well, I hope you will consider it, and thank you for everything you've done and continuing to do every day. Why don't you just tell the audience about your your Ukraine fund, where they could dial in so that you could promote that, because we thank you again for that and for everything you've done. Well, thank you, Suzanne. And uh, I'll tell you, thank you. You're thanking me for all I've done. I want to thank the people for the opportunity to lead this state. It was a tremendous privilege, and I can tell you there were ups and downs, but I am extremely grateful for having had that privilege and that honor, and I'm glad it ended, in my view, well. Um, we have the georgepatakicenter.com, and uh, if people donate, uh, we have a particular button to help the people of Ukraine that they can, they can hit. And as I said, 100% volunteers, with the exception of travel and security, every nickel will go to provide humanitarian relief to the people of Ukraine. Thank you so much, and thank you for coming on The Miller Report. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning into The Miller Report. Please download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.